Hi everyone, um, we will start on top of the hour. Thank you for coming. And uh, this will be a really interesting room regarding climate. So, and a really important one because, you know, we need to, if we have drought, we don't have food. And I don't know if anyone um, realizes, but, um, in France, actually, it's the first time they have a winter drought, a very severe one. Um, and yeah, France is pretty north relative to other uh, countries. Uh, so, you know, we, we know that drought will be a problem and to have good predictive models um, are really important. So I'm really happy that um, Elie Felsha, she uh, offered to come here and talk about this topic today. So, uh, as I said, we'll start in around eight minutes. I uh, left the article links. It's actually two. I don't know why they are meshed up together. Let me just post them again. Um, in the meantime, please check them out. I will post the presentation on top of the room. So here's one and there's the second one. And so they are separate. Good. And uh, yeah, we'll start shortly. Thank you for coming. Feel free to share the room. Um, I think this is a really important topic. So um, yeah. the more people that learn about this, I think, and how we can use AI in this field is, uh, is really interesting and important. So feel free to share it. Thank you. Okay, the presentation is pinned. Thank you, Heidi, Dr. Heidi. Yeah, and feel free to raise your hand uh, to come up to the stage to ask questions. And um, yeah, the more people participate in discussions, I think the more interesting it usually is. So, and thanks for being here. I hope everyone had a great weekend and uh, is well rested. <laughs> I feel like sometimes weekends are more draining <laughs> than the week when the kids are home and everything is chaos. But yeah, I hope for everyone else it's different. <laughs> Well, this week also my kids are home because they are off. So if you hear dogs barking and kids playing in the background, I apologize. But I live in the city. It's an apartment. So you will hear it probably.
Yeah, I hope everyone can access the the pinned uh, presentation. Uh, feel free to check it out. Um, for me, it takes a little bit to load, but then it works in the end. So I hope that's the case for everyone. Um, if not, please let me know. Then I I have to um, to compress the file. <laughs> Thank you, Heidi. <laughs> Dr. Heidi. <laughs> I have autocorrect issues all. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Hi, Elisaveta. Do you want me Hello. to Eli or Elisaveta? Um, uh, Elisaveta is fine, I think, yes. Okay. And yeah, meet Dr. Heidi. Uh, welcome, Dr. Heidi, to the stage also. Uh, uh, nice to meet you. Thank you, Katarina. Nice meeting you both. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming. We will start in around three minutes. So, oh yeah, you unmuted. I, I wonder is Mondiitis um, um, popular in Europe as well, or it's just Australian term? You know what I mean? Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't hear people using it here, at least in the US, a lot. I don't know, Eli. What do you What do you think? So, so, sorry, I couldn't understand it. What's What was the question about? How you feel on a Monday, like? <laughs> ah. <laughs> I was just yeah. chatting. <laughs> yeah, I think it's always the same. Um, <laughs> depending on your weekend, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was saying I hope everyone feels, you know, very rested from the weekend. But most of the time, I feel the opposite way because the kids are all home and it's chaos. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we will start soon. Uh, I posted the papers you shared in the chat mm -hmm. and I added the presentation on top of the room. So everyone should be able to access it if you want to refer to, you know, those different files. Um, that's where they are. And yeah, we will start in a couple of minutes. So how's the weather in California right now? Um, yeah, it's rainy. It's really rainy. Uh, so f I'm just visiting here. Um, so for me, for winter weather, that's okay. But um, hearing from others that uh, it usually doesn't rain, uh, yeah, makes me also wonder when it's going to stop. So today I opened the 10 day weather forecast and it said just rain every day. Um, yeah, so very unusual for, for those regions. Yeah, I think it even snowed, right, in some places? Yeah, there is snow in the mountains, so you can see it from, uh, if you have a little bit of view on, I don't know, it's also not that, that high mountains here, right, but there is still snow, so really unusual uh, winter, but let's hope for a nice blossom, so like that, so there's, there. I read yesterday that there are high hopes for super bloom this year, so maybe that's going to be kind of uh, the good part about it. <laughs> No, oh, that sounds great. That sounds beautiful. Unless you have allergies, then that's true. Wearing a mask probably helps. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you yes. can see the pretty flowers, but you know you don't have to sneeze. Yeah. Maybe your eyes, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> How's the weather at the east coast? Well, it's unusually mild this year. I mean, it snowed like so little most yeah. of the time. It's 
above zero Celsius. Yesterday was 10, I think. Mm -hmm. The weekend before it was like 14 and sunny. Like, okay. And yeah. then in between, it's kind of like four, something like that. There were very few days where it was uh, below zero. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's unusual. Last year was already pretty mild, but I believe this year is even milder. So, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we we knew that this would happen, right? <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> it's Whether like out, a... out of equilibrium, some something's off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean that it doesn't snow here, but then I believe in LA that there was snow. That's really, yes. you know, really weird. I kind of liked um, New York. Probably most people don't. I like that it had a really hot summer but then also a really cold winter with snow i like that you know that variety of weather because where i grew up in both places in germany and in portugal it was just rain in the winter mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just depressing <laughs> yes actually winter with real snow is way better that's also what i what i think because uh, gray and rain is not pleasant but with snow you can do so much outdoor stuff you can actually enjoy the weather yeah uh, and not be like okay just stay home yeah exactly <laughs> right that's really nice i think we can start now so okay perfect that we chatted about the weather because it's kind of a climate <laughs> room and i know people will keep coming in but uh let's start with uh introductions and then we'll go from there so welcome everyone to Science Society, and of course, a special welcome to you, uh, Elisaveta Fellship. And um, before we start, uh, let me give the audience, you know, a little bit of information so that they know you a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And um, um, Elisaveta did her... Um, double degree, um, bachelor's degree in physics and um, philosophy in Munich. Um, and um, with, you know, our very excellent, very excellent grades, especially in Bavaria, if you have an A, that's like, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's, you cannot achieve a better grade in Germany. And, um, then she did um, a climate research intern in Montreal in Canada at Oranos. And um, she also did uh, work in IT at um, the Allianz um, uh, in Munich, Germany. And she then also started as um, a PhD student at the Department of Geography in in Munich and um, yeah she finished her master's in physics uh, in Munich Germany um, in working in climate sciences and machine learning um, at the same time um, which is I think really interesting that you combine these two um, expertise for this field I think that's that's really interesting and um, Elisaveta also um, received scholarships from um, the Bayerische Elite Academy 
and um, she had um, she's a she was a holder of the Deutschland Stipendium, and she's also she was also the co-founder of Me.Now, a project for stress reduction in schools, um, where she had the role of um, main project manager, um, which is also really interesting. <laughs> I will ask you about um, where, where you worked in, you know, designing um, workshops for uh, different schools uh, in Germany. And you are also the counselor at the School of Investigators Dialogue. Um, and yeah, so you have a really interesting and really diverse uh, curriculum, which I love. <laughs> so um, yeah, the first question would be, how did you discover these different passions in your life? Like, did you start with one and then one thing led to the other? Were you always that you had different interests and just had the energy to keep, uh, you know, different passions going and then kind of figured out to combine them together? I think it's really interesting to learn from you. Thank you. Uh, so first of all, uh, very happy to be here. Thank you, Katarina, for the invitation and the kind introduction. Uh, and also um, happy um, to be sharing a bit uh, more about my research here and non-research. Um, so thank you for you for all of you being here. Uh, and concerning your question, Katarina, yes, I have a very multidisciplinary background. Um, I think what kind of always drove me is that I want to kind of the good I want to contribute to kind of the pressing issues they are um, so kind of currently besides my PhD I'm also working um, in entrepreneurship education so I'm really working with people that want to kind of change the world and make it a better place and I think this is what kind of also followed me through my CV so kind of um, I worked a lot with young people so with school children in this me now project or with um, adolescence which was uh, the case as a as a kind of summer uh, summer school counselor um, and so what I found always striking there is that I knew I kind of can make an impact there by showing them access to new tools helping them um, kind of discovering themselves or like in the stress project uh, stress reduction project on showing school children strategies on how to cope with stress because this is actually a topic which will follow, like I think everybody of us through their whole life. Um, and also then coming to science for me, it was crucial to pick a topic which is, um, yes, which is pressing <laughs> because I started off my research in particle physics and I truly believe that also in particle physics, there are huge discoveries to be made, but I kind of compare to my, for myself, where can I make the kind of the biggest contribution um, and this is basically what led me to climate science and what left me kind of also there. And, and that's why I also pursued it in my PhD. Yeah, that is wonderful um, to hear that you followed your passion and you were very purpose driven. And I think that's the only way one can find the energy to do all these things because every single one of them needs a lot of energy and expertise. 
Um, so I think the only way <laughs> to achieve that and to keep it going, right? Not just to achieve it short term is really a purpose. So yeah, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's wonderful to hear that um, you also received the opportunities to to do that what do you think was the most important opportunity or which were kind of the key points that allowed you to you know to pursue these different things because you know you can have sometimes like really bad luck and you have a supervisor mm -hmm. that kind of doesn't agree you're doing anything else or you know funding um so so what do you think were kind of the key points for you mm, so well it's hard to tell I mean I think it, it always uh starts a bit with where you come from and I was incredibly lucky to come from a family where I had uh very strong um female role models so as well uh, my grandmother as well as my uh, mother were both um working actively uh in science and um so for me it was never a question of whether a girl can do something like that so this was completely clear uh an outlet there so i think um just to say that there i'm super lucky um and then i think um um going to uranos to montreal was a really uh, good experience for me because i had a great supervisor who was supporting and actually seeing me in the field. So I was co coming from a totally different background, right? I was coming from physics and then coming to climate. It's, I mean, of course it's connected. It's the same physical laws, but it was a generally new domain for me. Um, yes. And so last but not least, then coming into this innovation field where I all of a sudden, sudden saw, right, no matter which field you're in, um, you can do innovation there. You can think of new ways um, and you can combine new ways. And this is an incredibly uh, fast lived and really great um, environment where just everybody is interested in what you're doing um, and supports you on your way. Yeah. So maybe this this is what I would call kind of the corner experience, like key experiences <laughs> that you ask for. Yeah, that, that's wonderful um, to hear. And um you know to to see how important role models are and uh then also support which um i think you know i think the emphasis at least here in the us is way too often on uh, if the family had money or so but i think if you have the right ro role models yeah if you can imagine yourself doing something um, that that helps a lot. Um, I think even a lot more because you know you can have a lot of money, but still don't think you can succeed <laughs> yes. in something. So so yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was a really interesting um, interview um, and and a very I think different than than others. So thank you for sharing that and. Yeah, the, the presentation is pinned on top of the room, so everyone please access it. And Lisaveta, the stage is yours. Thank you. Perfect. Let's get going. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, just maybe before you open the presentation, um, kind of the first introductory part will not be on the presentation. Um, so welcome to listen like that, but I will um, say when I will be coming to the presentation. 
So what I want to talk today about um, is kind of my two research projects um, that I have been conducting and publishing so far. Um, and the overall topic is to use AI to understand heat wave and drought formation, uh, because I really believe that there are many ways in which kind of machine learning methods can, can help us, especially if you imagine, right, we live in a very data rich world and we will have way more data the longer it goes. So we kind of need to find the tools that will actually help us to understand the physical systems. Um, and so um, I focused on heat waves and droughts. Um, so let's start off maybe with a question, why is it important to look at heat waves and droughts? Uh, well, my research is focused on Europe. So we have had there um, kind of for the past 20 years, for sure, every two or three years, we have a major heat wave happening. Um, and a lot of times also accompanied by a drought. So 2003, 2010, 2018, just to name a few. Um, also in North America, we have had um, this problem in the past year. So to 2000, kind of actually the last summer, so 2022 was exceptionally hot. Um, multiple <clears throat> temperature records were some tasks in the United States. Um, between, and it, this lasted actually for one whole season between May and September. So a very huge and long event. Um, also, not too long ago, 2019, there was a combined heat wave and drought in September, October, um, kind of around Colorado and central United States. Um, that actually, um, it was not just a heat wave, but actually also an exceptional drought. So um, just also to name in the beginning what I wanna will be talking uh, about. Uh, so what do I understand behind those events? So a drought. Uh, is generally a deficit in water, and we can define it in multiple terms. It can be a meteorological drought, which means there is just too little precipitation. It can be an agricultural drought, which means there is not enough soil moisture um, for um, crops to grow, or it can be um, a hydrological drought, which means that our kind of our water reservoirs and our water catchments don't have enough water. Um, then on the other side, heat wave, um, also an easy definition here. I think uh, that it's just a period of abnormally high temperatures. So usually one would take their 19th, 19th or 95th percentile um, of mean temperature or of, uh, daily maximum temperatures. Um, and we say that um, in climate science, like usually heat waves should be at least two, three consecutive days, but we know they can last for weeks or months. Um, and usually a heat wave takes place when kind of there is a high pressure system that develops across one region and that it persists over that area for a long period of time. And so um, maybe also to stay, take a step back here and also to look a bit into atmospheric science, what does it mean? Um, so I would like to, to talk a bit about the jet stream, right? Um, so probably most of you heard that uh, kind of the jet stream is this strong wind blowing from uh, west to east and in the northern hemisphere it's basically transporting the weather um, so it's transporting the high and low pressure systems from west to east and usually the way it goes that it's just alternating right that after a high pressure systems comes a low pressure systems um, so basically after um, kind of five days ten days of sunny weather we will have a period of rain um, such that our whole climate and vegetation systems can come again in equilibrium, have enough water, again, saturate, and then again, it will need the sunlight. 
And so the jet stream is flowing um, in the troposphere, so it's around 10 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. And what I actually really like is this comparison of the jet stream to the highway, right? It's just uh, the, the atmospheric highway which brings us the weather. And uh, so it can also happen that there is a traffic jam at the highway. So basically that the, um, our cyclones and anti-cyclones traveling on it, uh, staying there for longer. Um, and just to mention here, an anti-cyclone is the same as a high-pressure system and a cyclone is the same as a low-pressure system, just not to confuse anybody here. Um, so basically when a heat wave, so just to connect to the heat waves here, when a heat wave develops, that actually means that our jet stream somehow changed its way or maybe that the incoming low-pressure system was not strong enough to move away the high pressure system such that it persists. Um, so, and it happens on a regular basis, such kind of an event. So this is basically when a heat wave develops. So such kind of a weather pattern is called an omega weather pattern of blocking. Um, and it prevents kind of the, the, um, the rainy weather from coming in. And if you're kind of interested in uh, basically looking how our weather daily looks like there is a really great research uh, resource which is called earth.mousecalp.net where you can have a look at jet stream and all different um, climate variables but um, i'm happy to post it in the chat maybe a bit later uh, but first to kind of follow along so now i explained right um, that we have this jet stream and that needs to, to have a blocking event for a heat wave to happen however um do we does it mean we can actually predict what's going to happen? Unfortunately not. So I think all of you know that the weather forecasts are limited to around 10 days, but basically we also know that like beyond five to six days, we don't need to be too concerned about it. And the reason for that is that although we know what kind of processes dominate, uh, still the system is so complex and has so many little interactions um, that we don't know which effect is going to be uh leading to those major events so on the regional scale we have a lot of interactions which can play a significant role but also on the global scale so for example we all know that after volcano eruptions there is usually a cooling because um kind of the particles from volcanoes prevent um the sun the the solar radiation from coming in so there is a cooling effect um, we know that um, our ice sheets are melting. That means that less um, solar radiation is reflected back, right? White, white um, surfaces are good in reflecting solar radiation, which means that basically more warmth is reaching the Earth. Um, and then we have kind of always the clouds interaction. We have the precipitation. We have our water catchments and also um, atmospheric currents, which are influencing the weather. This is such a huge and complex system that basically um, on the large scale, we don't know what's going to happen after 10 days and we for sure don't know what's going to happen next month. And kind of one more um, note on our atmospheric system is kind of the interaction between heat waves and droughts. So, um, we know that kind of a drought can trigger a heat wave and the other way around. And the way it works is that basically, uh, so let's imagine we have first the heat wave, um, then this of course leads to higher temperatures on the ground, which leads to more 
evaporation, which leads to drying of soil. So basically because of the heat wave, a drought can develop. But it can also happen the other way around um, that we have first a drought, which leads to kind of in general, less moisture in the atmosphere, which leads to less clouds. And which again means um, with less clouds, more solar radiation will be coming in. So again, a heat wave can develop. So um, this all said, um, kind of one last remark before I also can, can jump to the slides is basically that um, the events we want to be looking at and uh, events of heat waves and droughts are very rare. Um, and if we kind of have a look at observational data, actually our records are very limited. So let's say we have, we have temperature records, I think for 150 years, for the past 150 years. Um, and we're looking at events that happens maybe once per decade, right? Which will lead us to maybe 15 events to study, which is a really, really small number if you want to do statistical analysis with. Um, so, and given the high uncertainties of the system, it's even more complicated. So kind of the overall approach of the study and the work is actually to also look at model data where we can generate artificially way more events and from that to understand the physics better. But you will understand in a moment what I mean with it. So now um, you're welcome to jump into presentation. I'm on slide seven, motivation and research questions. Let me look at the chat. Okay, there is, I think, no other questions. Yeah, so if you have any questions also, you're welcome at any time to type them in the chat and I will have a look at them uh, from time to time. So um, what do we uh, want to understand? Um, so the leading research question here is what are the factors that contribute to the formation of heat waves and droughts on the regional level? Um, and basically um, to understand what we can learn about those events from big data sets with the help of AI. Of those great events. So coming um, to the data we're dealing with. Um, so uh, the special project is that we actually have access to a 50 member single model initial condition large ensemble, which means that we have our data available, not just one time, but 50 times, right? Um, so as I mentioned, if we would have just one, uh, kind of as with observational data it is the case we have just one realization we have two little statistics um, and that's why we make those model runs not just one time but 50 times which lead us just to um, kind of gives us the possibility to study the extremes and that also gives us the possibility um, to understand how the mean develops um, in terms of kind of climate change so this is a model which is kind of reproducing our world. So we have all the continents there, uh, we have all the oceans there, we have all the interactions in the system. And um, the way those 50 members are generated is by having small perturbations. So basically uh, changing a little bit uh, our initial values we're given to the model, we get very different outcomes. Um, and we have a look at a time frame of around 30 years of, uh, of historical climate. So it's 1981 to 2010 
and we use their uh, variables like daily maximum temperature, soil moisture, and precipitation. And we also do, of course, validate our results because we know that the model should be related to real world. We also do validate them with observational data sets. So now I'm on slide uh, with number nine. Um, so there are two research projects. First one I will be talking about, it's um, about predicting droughts uh, for two domains of Munich and Lisbon. Sorry. And the other um, is on typical heat wave patterns and how they're connected to soil moisture. So I would start off in the first project after a small, uh, give me five seconds. So what we basically did in the first project is kind of naively asking, um, can we predict droughts for these domains? And um, basically taking all the variables we were given. So we were taking 27 monthly atmospheric and soil variables from our model. So this is the CRCM5 large ensemble, as well as taking five large scale teleconnection indices. Um, what do I mean by that? So there are variables that are not kind of given locally, but they're describing in what state the overall atmospheric pressure system is. Um, so basically, all those. Um, kind of uh, short initials I'm giving there. So North Atlantic oscillation is now, um, SCA is the Scandinavian oscillation and so on. They are um, kind of giving us the overall state of the system. Um, and they can be actually also really useful for the prediction because they're not just locally, but they're also saying us how the overall um, atmosphere is doing. So on the right, I have also attached a, um, a picture on how those modes look like. Uh, and we're trying to predict drought with a lead time of one month using um, artificial neural networks to for the prediction. And after a lot, a lot of training, uh, we were able to obtain um, accuracies of 57 and 55 percent, uh, which are moderate. Um, uh, we truly believe it can be done better in future models. However, um, we understand this is not a forecast which is meant to be for the end user, right? So if somebody will tell you next month there is a drought happening, but with a 57% chance I'm right. Um, this is uh, not uh, not useful for the end user. However, what we can learn from those prediction is which variables are important, right? And then using those variables to again, a training and evaluation, um, and then maybe arrive sometime at, at higher precisions and higher accuracy. Um, so going to those next steps, what we did is um, applying the Shapley me method, uh, which is, um, if you're not from the machine learning field, it's basically a way to look at which variable is important for the prediction. So where does the model um, take its skill from? Um, so what we're getting is that for Lisbon, we have the sea level pressure, surface pressure, and North Atlantic Oscillation 1, which is this teleconnection indices. Um, important for the prediction and all those variables are important just one month uh, before the drought is happening. Everything else, everything before is not that important. For Munich, we have a similar result, but also another variable is important, which is East Atlantic Western Russia oscillation, but five months before the event is happening. And this is actually really exciting because here we have not just variables important one month before drought is happening, but also five months, which gives us a way longer period. Um, and so kind of as the last step is in the study, what we did is to have a look at um, 
at those variables in terms of seasonality. So um, that we have a look at, okay, if the drought is happening in summer, what variables are important then? And kind of that's how we divided the variables. So now I'm at um, slide number 12. Um, and so also what we see there that this East Atlantic Western Russia Oscillation 5 is actually also important in Lisbon. And that's the most important predictor um, for both domains and not just for Munich. In terms of others, the, the variables stay more or less the same. They, they just uh, interchange. So sometimes it's um, the North Atlantic Oscillation 1, which is first. Sometimes it's sea level pressure, which is first. But everything else is more or less as we would expect. And what we also can drive from that is that kind of um, also soil variables are not that important, that it's mostly atmospheric variables which are telling us if a drought is going to happen. So, so much um, for my first project. Now I would like to start off into the second one, which kind of starts with heat waves and then arrives at, uh, at kind of soil moisture. So to deep dive into that, um, let's start off with definition so here first step was to understand what kind of typical modes of heat waves are there in the european domain um why is that important well because um oftentimes studies use kind of artificially chosen regions so they say well um let's take this country and let's just make the study based on this country however um we have kind of different atmospheric modes of heat waves, right? Um, so there are regions which are closer interconnected where which are where the heat waves is rather happening at the same time, and there are other regions which are rather not interconnected. And so we wanted to find out those natural modes. Um, and yeah, it was super useful to have this very same data set where we had um, the 50 members. So this led us to actually 50,000 heat waves which we have yeah, 50,000 heat waves, which we could analyze. Um, and we did it by um, applying hierarchical agglomerative clustering. So again, a machine learning method, um, which um, kind of is clustering similar events together. And what we came up uh, with were those nine different heat wave patterns, which you see on the right of slide number 14. Um, so um, I want to just na name it uh, one time because I'm not sure if everybody has the presentation in front of them. So it's Iberian Peninsula, uh, which is among for um, above Portugal and Spain. There is Western Europe too, which is kind of uh, combining Southern France and Northern Spain. Western Europe wine one above France and Germany. Um, then the British Irish cluster. Then the South Eastern Europe. Southeastern Europe cluster, which is um, uh, the region above um, Balkans and Italy, um, Greece, South Italy, Scandinavia, um, Central Eastern Europe, and Northeastern Europe. So those are the nine distinct clusters we found. Then uh, we were wondering, okay, uh, we find them with the model data, do we also find them in observational data? Um, and we did this in kind of different ways. Um, one time we also performed clustering and observational data and we were able to compare the clusters. Um, however, what I want to show here is more the comparison with, uh, uh, with historical events. So on slide number 15, um, this is from a publication by Rousseau on, at the, on the 10 most extreme European heat waves. 
Um, and there we did a matching of those historical events, historical heat waves with our generalized clusters. And um, we actually argue that we are able to find a very good correspondence there. Um, it's of course not true for all of them because some of the heat waves are outside of our domain. Uh, there is also one event in July 2006, which is kind of spatially super distributed, but actually all others were able to find a really, really well matching. Um, and this was also actually interesting for me because what the clusters are, they are kind of a mean of the system. Um, however, we see that uh, also in terms of historical heat waves, they are just a manifestation of the same pattern. Um, so this was kind of a validation step. Um, so kind of the questions question we were trying to answer there is if those patterns we're finding are meaningful and we can say yes, they are meaningful and we can find them in the real world. And the last step was to have a look at those clusters we're finding and see what we can learn from them on kind of this, again, topic of predictability. Um, so what we did there is um, to focus on the soil moisture. And so we went um, kind of for every single cluster, we asked ourselves, how is the occurrence of a heat wave in this specific region and this specific cluster is connected to a soil moisture deficit in the season before the heat waves happening, in the season during the heat waves happening and after the heat wave. So we did this by actually for every model year we're looking at counting how many heat wave days were there in this specific cluster and um, kind of um, connecting it to a soil moisture anomaly in the season before the heat wave during and after. So um, if you're wondering what, so I'm on slide 17, if you're wondering what the abbreviation is, so JFMA is January, February, March, April. So these are basically the months, uh, the seasons we're looking at. And we did this by applying the method of quantile regression, uh, because this allows us actually to have a look at the more extremes. So basically what it does is, is uh, that it's not just uh, kind of making a regression of the mean, but it's also looking at if for more extreme quantiles. So for example, for um, kind of higher number of heat wave days, if there we can find a kind of a, a regression line, um, a kind of, I don't know, negative or positive regression line, which tells us that in the mean, there is there might be no relationship. However, for those more, more extreme events, which we're looking at there, we, we can find a relationship. So um, going to the results of this very last part on slide 18, um, here on the left, you see the quantile regression slopes for those three regions um, and kind of slope means the more negative is it, it is, the stronger the interaction here between higher heat, high number of heat wave days and less soil moisture. Um, so we can, what we can find there, and actually here just the significant clusters are shown that soil moisture deficit in spring um, in the regions of Iberian Peninsula, Western Europe, two Southeastern Europe and Greece, which are basically all regions in the south, um, that there um, kind of after a very dry spring, it's there's a higher chance to have a very hot summer. And basically the way we're interpreting it is that actually um, in those regions, we have a limited soil moisture and that um, those link I have been describing before where a drought is triggering a heat wave is true for those regions. And this is basically the 
um, the interaction we're dealing here with. And this is actually also really interesting that uh, kind of by having a look at the soil moisture, we might be able to predict heat waves in summer for those southern regions. Um, so this was the first season we were looking at. Next season is kind of basically soil moisture during um, the heat wave, slide number 19. Um, this is actually uh, more proof of a concept. So we see an effect for all the um, all the do all the all the clusters we're looking at, and basically the longer the heat wave, the stronger the soil moisture anomaly, and other way around. Um, so not that exciting, more proof of concept. And but last but not least, um, also really interesting to look in the next season. So what we do there is, is it more probable to have a soil moisture anomaly, um, a negative soil moisture anomaly after there has been a heat wave in a region in summer? And yes, we do find it for just um, some regions. So we do find it just for um, northern clusters, so Scandinavia, northeastern Europe, as well as for eastern cluster, southeastern Europe. Um, and how we're interpreting it is basically that in those regions, it, it kind of takes, um, after a very hot summer, it takes until the next season for the soil moisture to fully recover. So um, it's more probable that we will have a drought after a long heat wave. Um, yes. And yeah, I think that's it on the results of the second study. So you can find an overview um, over the study on slide 21. And I would like just like to summarize with um, kind of what we have learned from our studies is basically that um, on the one hand, in terms of drought, we can say that predictability of droughts is really varies across seasons. So we actually, um, and, and regions, so we have to go into uh, the specific regions and seasons and then um, investigate on which variables are important for the predictions. Um, we learned that um, in summers, uh, we have even a predictor, which is um, East Atlantic Western Russia oscillation, which is five months before the event is happening, which allows our seasonal prediction. And it's interesting to look at why this, this in index is actually so powerful and meaningful. Then we have learned that soil moisture droughts in Southern Europe in spring can, can serve as a predictor for long heat waves in summer. And on the other hand, that in Scandinavia, Northeastern Europe or Central Eastern Europe, after prolonged heat waves, there is a higher chance of also of a soil moisture deficit in the following autumn. And kind of zooming out, um, what I hope to show with this research is that um, machine learning models, AI models help us to gain insight into factors leading to extreme events. Um, and that this is crucially important to make better seasonal predictions of extreme events. Thank you so much. And sorry, I have been not been looking in the chat, but maybe let's do it now. Oh, yeah, th thank you so much uh, for presenting this really interesting and amazing work um, that you did here. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, you explained it really well, um, how you used the different data sets and um, to create this uh, predictive models. Um, that's that's really interesting. And um, I, I was really surprised by the amount of actual severe weather um, events, data sets, there were available. That's really interesting. So 
just to to make clear like uh, for the audience how long uh, time-wise do those go back those data sets um, and does the frequency of data sets increase uh, in the last years and could that maybe you know be problematic that there is maybe more uh, data sets from recent years the higher frequency would that somehow you know make the model uh, different than if there would be you know a lot uh, the same amount of data sets over all the whole time scale you're using and what the time scale is um so um maybe just to to distinguish here so we have of course we have a kind of the data sets so on the one hand side we have the data sets based on reality observational data sets this is always so they, they're not getting bigger right um we, they're just getting more precise because we're able to measure in a better way the variables however the problem with observational data sets is that on the one hand side they don't provide that much data as mentioned and on the other hand side that we cannot have all the atmosphere all the variables we're looking at we, we would like to have because um for example yeah just take air pressure or uh atmospheric winds or um, actually soil moisture it's really hard to measure soil moisture on a big scale so that's why we're using models because models are able to give us all the variables at the precision we want to have them so basically the model we're looking at have, have a, has a very high precision of 12 kilometers um, and this is great because especially maybe if it's kind of very habitated uh, regions there we would have such kind of a precision but for northern regions uh for example or for deserts we just don't have that many measuring stations um and um so yes there if, if you look at model data um more and more model data is being generated however um kind of you always try to focus on the most recent data uh, so that's why it's not kind of exponentially rising, but you rather would look at, okay, what is the data set that is best representing the atmospheric circulation, that is best, best representing um, um, the land atmosphere interactions. Um, and yes, the trend is kind of also to go into this um, large ensemble creations, which means uh, that, yeah, you have you basically generate terabytes of data um where machine learning is actually useful to analyze that i hope i answered your question yeah thank you and um the so do you think well are we starting to use sensors maybe in soil in different spots or is there you know did we did do that already i'm sorry i don't know that to get more accurate uh, soil moisture data or do the current weather sensors already, are they already able to, to spot it relatively precisely? Um, I'm not sure if I understood the question. So I think, um, yes, there's of course a lot of development going on, but I think it's just um, too much of an effort. Uh, if you imagine to have a 12 kilometer resolution, I mean, you can do it for one country but um, how do you make sure that actually big regions are covered? 
Um, so I think that's kind of one of the key issues, I think, um, where there's a lot of potential is actually uh, by you using space images, by using remote sensing to estimate those uh, variables, because then, you know, you have also uh, kind of the whole picture, right? But then there are again problems, what happens if you have, I don't know, clouds in the way. Um, so I think different methods are, are, are needed. So it's probably the way forward is probably not to have those um not to have way more of those uh, measurements on earth but rather doing it from space because then you can also ensure consistency yeah i'm asking because at the oceanographic institute in woods hole i was at the marine biological one and we had mm -hmm. like good meetings i um it this is years ago when i was a postdoc mm -hmm. there uh they started to measure the 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 green like the color of uh the green of leaves and different plants to make also a predictive models and how well you know plants are doing crops are doing um forests are doing and i was wondering if those shades of green maybe for example could mm -hmm. be used or other you know more because we are developing fairly cheap sensor um technology for personal health use and then also um you know for all kinds of stuff so for agriculture this type of modeling to have this precise and to extend that future will be really um important probably for survival of a lot of people so i was wondering if there you know if you know that there's a lot of development or effort to put in good sensors in different places where it's important mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, as as you, it is as you basically described it that um, um, kind of as in the oceanography research, um, it's important to have a good kind of Earth representation to know uh, where we are dealing with which land cover. Um, important to calculate the kind of the solar radiation reflection as well um, as of course what kind of land cover it is, how it interacts uh, with atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, for sure, there is a lot of research going into this direction into kind of um, precision uh, of the measurements we're dealing with. Thank you so much. And yeah, a lot of people um, joined the stage for questions. So, um, yeah, please go and PTR order everyone. So um, I think Joyce was your first, Dan, Deepak, Ayer, Armish and Eric, welcome to the stage. And yeah, go ahead with your questions. Thank you. Okay, yeah. First, thank you for going into this field. It, it's so important to have really smart people going into this area because we all know this is a really crucial problem with climate change. Um, I was going to say, I, I actually have a background years ago where I was at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and I had a postdoc and it was related to the climate. And, and, and I remember learning a lot about systems thinking and systems theory and modeling. And one of the things I thought I would mention just for people who aren't as familiar, um, the issue with the short-term forecasts for weather, at least one of the big problems is what is sometimes called the butterfly effect, where the initial conditions um, have a really huge effect when you follow over time. And so you'd have to know so many different variables so precisely to predict a really long time in the future. And so 
anyway, it's, it's really great to see that, um, you know, different approaches are used that, you know, say a variable like soil moisture is a more of an integrative variable that integrates a lot of information into it. And so it makes a lot of sense. And, and so I'm really glad that you're using these new techniques and, and AI machine learning. And anyway, did you want to make any comments about the sort of butterfly effect and the problem with temporal modeling of that kind? Anyway, thanks, I'm done. Uh, thank you very much, Joyce. Uh, can, can you please repeat the last two sentences because my internet connection, I think I didn't hear you well. Okay, well, the last part was just, did you want to make any comments about that sort of issue with modeling and, and the sensitivity to initial conditions and, and how, how um, you, you've dealt with that? Anyway, just, yeah. that's just the general idea. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, the way I was dealing from it, so I'm not uh, kind of a modeler myself, but the way I'm dealing with this is by ex actually exploring this ensemble spread, because actually what you Joyce introduced so nicely, this butterfly effect is that what you of the project where this data is created from is actually to estimate how um, actually climate change also in future is going um, to change the mean of our climate system, but also the extremes. And what we see there is that um, this, this whole model starts from like different butterfly effect uh, kind of alternate differences in the initial conditions. Uh, and then we see, yes, differences in the mean temperature um, of one degree or so. And this is a lot, right? So, because currently our um, climate change from pre-industrial times is around 1.3 degrees. So, what this butterfly effect in the end means is, we see a great effect of the, uh, we see great effects of climate change, or we see none. And this is actually in part how much it it uh, it varies. However, what we also know is that kind of also with the most cold models of our 50 members by the end of the century um we still have a climate change effect we just kind of now can estimate the range in which it will be um yes so that's kind of the one perspective like from the modeling side unfortunately i can't give you more insights thank you i think i'm next here in yep. dtr yeah hi so uh as a follow-on, I guess, to that question, um, I, I've been looking at uh, NCAR, um, which is a research facility in the U.S., I'm sure you know, mm -hmm. um, that looked at drought. Uh, this is actually quite a long time ago, and they did predictions for uh, 2030s, 2060s, 2090s. And in the 2060s, they had a Palmer drought index of like minus nine across a lot of the U.S. and a lot of southern Europe and other places which is like three times the 1930s Dust Bowl. So to me, this is some of the scariest climate predictions that are out there, and it's not one that's talked about really much at all. So I'm just wondering, have you looked at long-term forecasts for drought, and does that kind of number that I just quoted seem about right from what you understand? Um, so um, looking at... Europe. So what I can share there for sure is that 
with um, kind of the current emission scenarios, if kind of everything goes as we're expecting it to go. So uh, if, so that's what, what, what I mean by that is that basically we continue emitting CO2 on the rate we're emitting now, um, that basically the drought severity will increase by around two, three times. So um, we don't have that kind of an, an event which we can compare to, because I think the, the Dust Bowl was actually a very huge event for the US, uh, but that would actually mean that there is a kind of a shift in, um, in climate zones and climate regions that basically the way it is now in Southern Italy, that's how Northern Italy will become. So kind of everything is shifted more up and then we'll basically need uh, our whole vegetation system will need to adapt. And this is, yeah, very scary. Um, however, I think like from recent research, we still have the chance of kind of um, making the changes that um, um, by introducing mitigation measures now, we won't see the effect immediately, but by the end of the century, we will actually be able to get back to more or less normal situation. But yeah, that's how it is with extreme events. We can't say but, if also if the event is going, is happening because of climate change, right? Also dust bowl happened without, almost without climate change. Right, well, right, but it was, um, I, I'm, I'm yeah, not yeah, sure about what you just said though, because even with mitigation efforts, which I assume you mean if we reduce our emissions, Yeah. but climate change doesn't improve the heat Temperature doesn't improve if you reduce your emissions. It only stops getting worse. So what do you mean by if we have mitigation, we can get back to normal? I, I, I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we can't um, take the CO2 out of the atmosphere again, but so we um, we see a rise in extreme events. So because then the rise in extreme events also happens because kind of our system, so the way I understand it, at least as out of the equilibrium, um, and then by kind of um, stopping the emissions, we kind of get back a bit to a more normal system. We won't ever be back at where we've been 100 years before, but at least um, kind of we can have uh, the, the climate is more in balance. We have more of what we're expecting. Hmm. Maybe okay. that clarifies it. <laughs> All right, thanks. Sure, you're welcome. Yeah, Deepak, did you want to ask a question? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, like, uh, how reliable and uh, uh, accurate is this uh, uh, A model? And uh, what are these limitations in the long run? Sorry, what was the second part of the question? I... Uh, what are these limitations in the long run? Ah, like yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Um, so how reliable is the model? Um, um, so the way one evaluates the models is rather in the projected change and not kind of in absolute numbers. Um, so I think there we see that the model has for sure biases um, in terms of um, kind of it projects, it's, it's a bit warmer and it's a bit wetter actually. So if this model tells there is more drought and it's actually wetter than, than the reality, then we kind of, yeah it's actually also interesting um the general limitations are well 
it's hard to talk about them in general sense that that, 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 that what I would say, because actually you have to evaluate it as for every variable. Um, however, I think the good thing about the model is with, that we have a lot of members and that we actually can estimate the, that the mean is actually very reliable. So if you look at the mean, this is one of the biggest ensembles there are we're looking at. So usually like a lot of ensembles are maybe 10 members or 20. Here we have 50. So I think in terms of the mean, it's super reliable. Um, but of course it has biases as all the other models. It's not exceptionally more biased than the other state-of-the-art models. So that's what uh, kind of, uh, that's what the results from, from a recent study are. I hope it answers. Thank you, Deepak. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks. So who's next? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi there. Um, uh, thank you for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm from the Horn of Africa, um, Ethiopia, mm -hmm. Somalia. And we have incidences of drought every year. So um, I'm not sure how useful a predictive model would be for them. I can understand it in Europe where mm -hmm. it's excellent for the extreme cases and then you can uh, like in the Mediterranean region, but in places like Somalia, Ethiopia, where we have really awful incidences of drought. Um, my question would be, would your predictive model be able to tell us maybe it, what parameter was involved in causing the drought? Uh, could you use it in, in, in cases like that? Because we know, for instance, there is going to be a drought every year. We know that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But how would you use your models to help countries like that, which we know there's going to be a drought? Thank you. Thank you very much for your question and thank you for uh, tuning in from so far away. Um, so I think, um, so in general, if you know that the drought is going to happen, that's probably not the question of predictability, right? And that's, this is not the big question. I think on the one hand side, there is probably still some variation, right? So it might help with a kind of mitigate like local mitigation measures if you have some kind of knowledge when it's going to happen and of course on the other hand side we can look into the variables leading to the drought so yes we can apply the very same methodology and then see yes uh, kind of what variables were most important here and then maybe understand a kind of the mechanism of formation of droughts there so that would of course be possible but yeah you're totally right that um if there is no question, if a drought is happening, then there is no kind of uh, no magic behind knowing it by an algorithm, right? Thank you so much. Sure. Um, Let's go ahead. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. So I, I read the paper. Thanks a lot for your presentation. So I have uh, three groups of question. One is on the data collection. Second, on the modeling approach, and the third is the, on the performance of the model. So I'll, I'll just ask, I'll start with the data collection. So I, I can see there's 20 years of data which has been collected. I can understand precipitation and temperature data. I'm, I'm curious on how you get the calibrated uh, soil moisture data from 20 years because soil keeps on changing because of the deforestation and everything from the same area. From the same spot, how are you getting the 
uh, how did you manage to get the soil data with, with that preparation? That's, that's one thing. And second mm -hmm. thing is on the modeling data. Did you have enough event rate of draw data in last 20 years so as to build a significant model? Like, uh, did you have enough instances of drought in that sample so as to differentiate uh, it from the non-drought uh, uh, non uh, events? So I, I believe it's a supervised model. So uh, if if you can help me understand this point, I have a follow-up as well. I'm sorry if I'm taking okay. time. Um, oh, good. Uh, let's start into it. So um, the thing is that I'm using model data, right? This actually gives me all the variables I'm needing. Um, so it has kind of on 12 kilometer resolution and on daily to hourly scales, um, all kinds of variables, um, precipitation, soil moisture, temperature, daily maximum temperature, uh, radiation, and so on. Um, so here, um, I'm sorry if that was not clear, I'm not using observation data, but model data. So that basically is so solves the problem of having the data. It, of course, introduces the problem how accurate it is, uh, but there has been studies performed that actually tell, okay, um, what we're getting there is in the range of, of the observe, observed data. Um, and in terms of examples, so we're, as we're dealing with 1,500 model years, so we have um, I think around, uh, sorry, the study was a bit ago, but I think around five to 10,000 of, uh, kind of examples of droughts. So yes, it gave us kind of enough range to, um, do the machine learning based on that. And you're welcome to ask the follow-up question. Cause I think you saw, you said you have three of those. So, uh, Elizabeth, generally what we have seen is that the performance of these models are pretty low uh, especially when it comes to long-term forecasts uh, i mean in short term you can forecast a bit but uh, in long-term forecast the performance and accuracy of the model is such that it just you're doing something there are two plus two you're just adding an equation which gives you some directional uh, how is the performance of this mm -hmm. model and why uh, why do you use neural network with this uh, in such a limited data set, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. we have to we have to distinguish here between uh, prediction models. So I think what you meant is um, the performance of prediction models is low, right? The ones that are telling you what's going, how the weather is going to be in um, in ten days. But uh, here, this is a totally different approach. We're trying to estimate kind of the general state of our climate system, and we're trying to understand how our climate is going to develop given climate change and given all the influencing factors. And here we're rather trying to have an insight into kind of different uh, mechanisms of formation of those extreme events. Um, and then we can compare it to kind of the reality, but basically what we're doing here is multiplying the reality, right? So kind of having an insight into all the different weathers that might have happened if the initial conditions were different. So um, this is the, 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 the core idea. And so that's how we um, and kind of basically we use machine learning here because we just have the possibility to have so many extreme events and um, actually to study the interactions there given the amount of data. I hope that's clear. Thank you. It. Yep, thank you. Any, any plans of using, let's say satellite imagery, uh, the, the cloud, cloud imagery data which might give a 
different angle to the problem which might add up to this? Uh, well, for sure. So <clears throat> kind of for in terms of validation using observation data, using satellite imagery, um, this is great. So I think the approach here would be to start off with model data and then to look as to observation data if we can find similar effects that are maybe not that strong because we don't have the statistical background there. Uh, but that was given would give us an indication if um, what we're seeing there is true. Thank you so much. I think the hope in the future is that uh, the the question which I asked, if we have, uh, if we can take data from altogether different geography and yeah. and put together and come yeah. up with that underlying one factor which can govern these, that would be phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amish. I think Eric is next. Yeah, hi. Uh, so, yeah, this is a fascinating uh, area. Thanks for working on it. Um, I work in agricultural tech and, you know, I've paid a lot of attention over the years. So, you know, the company called Climate Corp, which was sort of one of the original companies many years ago. Now, I guess 10 years ago that um, I think what they did is something like they they helped worked with farmers and forecast the weather for them mm -hmm. and guaranteed it they had offered an insurance policy and told them what crops to buy and everything and uh i think they got purchased by monsanto but it, it's an it's an interesting sort of uh business and there's other companies out there there's uh, there's both an ag and just everything so do you have any, I mean, I don't know if I really have an exact question, but just sort of any <laughs> thoughts on some of these commercial applications of this in, especially in important areas like agriculture, where I think it's getting really difficult to grow crops because you might have like a cold snap or like right now here in California, it's raining a bunch. Maybe that'll affect the, it, it got warm earlier. Maybe things started to flower early and then the rains come and knock all the, the, flower blossoms off and affect the pollination and you get lower crop yields and I mean, but these things are very yeah. difficult to, to forecast. Um, yeah, so maybe to share some thoughts on it. So I have been doing some work also on crop predictability and also kind of given the current um, state of, of the climate, we'd like, we really struggle to predict it and then even going into changing climate, it might get even harder. However, um, I think it's really crucial to do that. And I think we see in, uh, in agriculture and also in a lot of other areas, a, um, an increasing demand for climate services. However, I think one, one hand, uh, like one challenge is, uh, the scientific, uh, usability and predictability. And I think there, um, it's, it's, uh, probably hard to predict when it's so when such kind of events as right now in California happen. However, I think in terms of hydrological modeling, we can we can do a lot in terms of risk estimations and maybe work work rather with risks in these areas. Um, so that those are the scientific challenges, but I think there are also a lot of usability challenges and I'm not sure how your experience as a user with Climate Corp was, uh, but actually, yeah, there is um, kind of another colleague of mine doing research on the different challenges that there are for um, users of climate services. And I think for sure there, there are also a lot of barriers um, to be, uh, yes, to be, get, that has to go out of the way. So 
I think we need more research for sure. We need more services. We need more people that actually talk uh, to farmers and understand they need and actually also translate those needs into the research, right? Because from the researcher's perspective, um, there's so many exciting questions to ask, but uh, we don't always know if this is actually the most relevant information for the farmer. So maybe just my few thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Jake, did you want to ask a question? Hi there. Thanks for such a good room. I uh, have a couple of questions. The uh, I'm curious is as to whether or not this uh, this AI is going to have the oceanic conveyor belt uh, data in it, and is there um, a sort of a, ref a future uh, guesstimate of of uh, 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 legislation? So like um, the laws, maybe the, the law, the long-term laws that are going to come into effect, whether or not that is also uh, uh, taken into consideration. I'm um, sorry, just a follow-up question. What do you mean by future legislation? So like world, um, uh, world laws, how they, how they're going, if there is any kind of change uh, that would affect it uh, similar to how uh, America has um, pretty much pays the the oil industry to make make gas, uh, but they're sort sort of ramping that down and making it more energy efe uh, efficient, uh, solar and and wind. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not that's that is uh, added in yeah. to the to the artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much. Um, I think I will start with the last question. So we. Um, we're basically looking at historic greenhouse gas emissions. So there is no, no at least at the, in, in our study, the overall model, it goes into the future and it has a CO2 emission scenario, which is kind of the business as usual scenario. Um, so there is a kind of no um, reduction of CO2, but there are a lot of different models, which are, which also actually do exactly model on um, how climate is going to be if we reduce um, our emissions to X, Y, Z. So basically in that terms, we're just looking at the history and trying to predict there. So basically no effect whatsoever. Um, and um, in terms of oceanic interactions, so we, this is part of the model, but it's like we have the global climate model, the kind of SM2, which we're using there. Um, and then there is the nested model. So I think we cannot so it's implicitly it's there, but we don't have any explicit um, oceanic interactions in the AI um, in that sense. I see. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for those questions. And one last thing I wanted to ask if you have a couple of minutes is, mm -hmm. um, can your model, like the model that you created, could people use it to let's say a small country or even maybe a group of farmers or a district to use the model to predict their local weather also let's say you know the farmers um, because I know that their initiatives from IBM and so on to have like a open source 
create mm-hmm. an open source data set for different countries, also African countries, and could they maybe feed into their local data and then use your model to predict better, you know, their weather and how to, you know, plant crops, what type of crops to maybe plant in the, you know, mm-hmm. for the next year and yeah. so on. Um, yeah, so uh, it would uh, for sure be uh, so um, the the challenges I think um, also here going from kind of the overall climate situation to local weather. So I think what uh, I could offer the farmers possibly is that they uh, kind of look at their region um, in terms of uh, kind of the second paper I was talking about in terms of clustering and have a look at or how are the local interactions with soil moisture for my region um, and actually maybe learn from that. So it's unfortunately not a concrete model which tells you what will happen next year given the situation now, uh, but at least it tells the statistics and probably uh, kind of before the local farmer, it takes uh, probably a scientist and a data modeler who takes this knowledge into account um, and actually builds an operational model. So this is what I was mentioning. It's not really operational now because it's just low accuracies so you need kind of more concentrated training um, to actually bring it to the farmer but um, this is super important and i think this is for sure the next general step that has to be taken yeah interesting do you think there will be non-code platforms in the future to help people with that so that they don't have to hire, you know, their own data scientist. Mm -hmm. So for local poor communities, do you think, or is there already enough non-coding technology platforms that would, you Mm -hmm. know, enable people to do that? So I think there are several challenges in this domain. So I think one one part is visualization because we actually have a lot of real like diff- different climate data but it has to be kind of interpreted and there are barriers in just opening the files so i think in terms of visualization we can still um, of our different models and prediction we can still do a lot better as community so i think that's kind of one um work stream and then probably the other one would be to promote climate services as well as on governmental as also in the private sector uh, which are working with the data and of course like for the greater public good and I think um, yeah there is a huge difference between climate services for I don't know big agricultural companies of course they will be able to to have some but then for kind of the local farmer that's probably um, to or for the local farmer in a um, in a country um, in the global south that probably might not be accessible. So um, let's hope that um, kind of governmental institution take over this role. Um, I'm not sure if kind of no code solution would help there because it's just, it's not just about the coding, it's more also about the physical knowledge behind the system, which you definitely need. Um, that's why I think the no code solution is kind of just one step uh, of many. Yeah, why I'm asking this, because in a lot of developing countries, the people that are actually working the fields and contributing to most food source are women. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of countries, access to higher education for women 
is really not the reality. So empowering those women in kind of a form, you know, where mm -hmm. they have like intuitive platforms uh, would be really helpful, um, I think. But that's another discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm really grateful that you came here and that you're working in this field and that you use your, because you could do this right now for Wall Street, right? You could use your brains <laughs> to work on Wall Street and make millions and millions, but you're doing this. So uh, congratulations. Thank you for doing this for humanity. And thanks for answering all of our questions and taking the time to be here. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so many for joining. I enjoyed the discussion a lot. Wonderful. And I hope you'll come back one day. Maybe <laughs> you'll come back, um, you know, in a year or two and to give us some updates. It would be wonderful for join our discussion. So you're always welcome back, of course. So and thank you everyone for coming, asking great questions. This was a really interesting discussion because a lot of people participated. I always appreciate that. And if you like discussions like this, follow the club and the next uh, talk will be with Dr. Mekunui um, talking about novel fast charging lithium metal batteries. Um, he will talk about that and um, yeah, it will be... Katrina, uh, can I say something? Yes, yeah, Can I say something yes, quick? Uh, I think I just want to stress on the importance of independent and government research into this field because a lot of uh, insurance companies they they offer micro insurance and crop insurance in these field and they have a lot of data and they can do a lot of uh, accurate forecasting but what they do is that wherever there is going to be payout they don't underwrite the policies much so they're actually when there's a possibility of drought they don't underwrite and don't insure that much because they are uh, their interest is more on their profitability and on the so yeah I think this sort of independent research is more important uh, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I agree on that. And then also, I think education, right? I think, is it Kenya? I don't know which country exactly right now. They have drought problems and the president or the government wanted to introduce crops that are he more heat uh, and drought resistant, but there's like a high, uh, you know, resistance against using those GMO plants for various reasons and for many good reasons to be kind of, you know, um, to have kind of doubts about what the Western world brings to those countries. But I think in this case, there, there, ha there has to be like a very independent education about these that don't have like um, interests of these companies in mind that have really, you know, independent, um, you know, ever, you know, researching of those crops and what is actually helpful for people and whatnot without being paid by the by those industries so yeah thank you so much for t for making that point and um elisaveta thank you so much we wish you all the best and all the funding and yeah we hope to hear from you again one day thank you <laughs> sure thank you very much bye 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 and i'll close the thank room thank you Bye. Thank you. Three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.